Welcome back to The Long Short. My name is Tom Kill. And I'm Drew Nicholl. So the topic of digital assets is rarely out of the headlines, including the tumultuous events that beset the crypto asset industry last year. And a lot of water has passed under the bridge since we discussed developments across the sector in episode 41 with Rain Steinberg of ARCA last October. But the topic that has caught our attention most recently here at The Long Short is the focus on stablecoins and central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. The Bank of England, among many other central banks, have recently shed some light on their various initiatives in this space. And so we wanted to find out exactly what was going on and what to expect in the short and the long term. And there's been no shortage of regulatory noise globally as rulemakers grapple with ambitions to capture the attention of industry participants across the digital asset space looking for a home, while also seeking to protect and educate investors from bad actors. To discuss all of this and more, we are delighted to be joined by Tina Baker-Taylor, who is a policy and regulatory strategy expert for EMEA at Circle, which is a fintech firm aiming to remove frictions from moving money globally. Tina, you are very welcome to The Long Short. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Drew. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with a little bit about your background, if, if that's okay. Uh, your CV is extremely impressive. And I can see you've held all sorts of senior positions at very big name firms that everyone will know. So could we just get a little bit about your story in the in your uh, sort of growth in traditional finance, uh, which I believe ended at HSBC, and then what drew you to the crypto space back in 2018 and, and how you've ultimately arrived at Circle? Sure. Um, so, so yes, I started my career in, in traditional finance and worked across a number of different areas, predominantly in marketing and comms, um, product development in uh, both capital markets and transaction banking. Um, in my last role, um, I worked in the innovation space within HSBC, um, specifically kind of around payments and, and trade finance. Uh, and that's where I really started to get involved in blockchain technology and proof of concepts uh, for using the technology to, you know, provide efficiencies around, you know, payments, um, letters of credit, etc. And one of the the really exciting parts about then, you know, distributed ledger technology for me was uh, the potential to be able to to tokenize value, um, and that value could be, you know, indeed money. Um, data, information, healthcare records, you know, our own identities, etc. And so um, as I kind of, you know, went down that rabbit hole, as, as we kind of say in the digital asset community, it became very clear to me that um, I was incredibly passionate about the potential and opportunity for tokenization. And I saw, um, you know, something that Circle CEO um, used to used to say often, you know, the tokenization of everything. Like I could really see a future where um, tokenization was going to create um, less friction, uh, increasingly greater transparency, and reduce cost um, across a number of of ways that we kind of spend and save and secure money. And so I was uh, drawn to the industry and decided to go into kind of crypto full time. And in that journey have had a number of kind of stops along the way, working for training platforms, helping to establish regulatory advocacy 
organizations, um, both working kind of at the global harmonization level, as well as, you know, the, the local country specific level. So I also sit on the board um, at Crypto UK, which is the UK's trade body. Um, so I think that that background in communications coupled with, you know, some, some operational experience and, and product development, uh, really contributed to having what I think is, is a pretty holistic view of, of how we bring, um, new products and services to market, as well as the importance of being able to communicate that value opportunity and indeed the risks, which has um, contributed to, you know, one of the reasons why I think I um, have found, you know, a, a solid home in the, in the policy and regulatory space, being able to work with policymakers um, and the industry both to help to articulate what sound governance will look like in the future. Tina, could I ask a question for the benefit of our listeners and, and for folks like me that might not be so knowledgeable about this space? When you talk about removing all friction or removing friction rather from moving money globally, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think um, if you've ever needed to, I think the, the easiest use case to kind of demonstrate is a cross-border payment. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about at Circle is you don't think about sending a cross-border email. You just send it. And um, there isn't a lot of effort kind of put into um, understanding anything technical about sending, you know, an email to somebody in the United States. But if you want to send money to someone in the United States, there's a lot of of differences, um, both in the infrastructure that you might use. Um, in the currency that is is being you know converted from one country to another, and indeed a significant amount of cost. So um, you know until a few years ago, really the only option was was a bank wire, um, and so you had to get that international information to send that bank transfer. Um, you potentially needed to go into the bank. Um, to, to, to organize that transfer. I mean, now we can do a lot more with apps, um, fill out a bunch of paperwork, make sure that you had all the correct information, um, pay a pretty significant fee, you know, could be 35 quid. And then, you know, hopefully five days later, someone on, you know, the other continent would receive that money, uh, less fees that they might be charged for receiving an international transfer. Um, and, you know, at the expense of whatever that FX conversion was. So, you know, that that is a kind of transaction plus five days experience with quite a lot of effort input. Um, today, you'd be able to send a, a transfer like that, um, you know, within potentially seconds, certainly minutes, um, and understand exactly what the fees might be. And they could be zero. Um, and uh, that money would be received by the recipient um, and and potentially would have a number of ways to, to cash that out if they chose to. Very clear. Thank you. Um, as Drew mentioned um, in the introduction, we'd love to hear more about stable coins. Um, some of our listeners may have heard of that description, perhaps not quite fully understand what we mean by stable coins. Could, so could I ask you then to give us a brief overview of what stablecoins are, including the different types that are available and, and why they are of such interest to central banks? Sure. So um, 
I think before stable coins, it's important to kind of articulate, you know, the difference between different types of, of crypto tokens. So we hear the term crypto and I think people immediately jump to cryptocurrencies um, or to Bitcoin um, and to potentially, you know, a number of risks that policymakers talk about, about having, you know, a a uh, speculative asset that, you know, some central bankers say, you know, have, have no inherent value of their own. Um, I think that's up for debate, but I think um, to, to distinguish stable coins from other types of crypto assets, uh, stable coins, fiat backed stable coins specifically. So circle issues um, to, digital currencies. One is USDC or USD coin, and the other is Eurocoin. And these tokens are uh, reserved by deposits. So somebody brings circle dollars, we put those dollars in a segregated bank account, and they just sit there. We don't spend them, we don't uh, hypothecate them in any way, they literally sit in an account. And we then issue a token, which is a digital representation of those dollars sitting in that bank account, which essentially allows the, you know, kind of internet supersizing of that dollar because now that dollar can move around through digital ecosystems in a way that um, traditional fiat is, is unable to today. So um, stable coins, the, the name itself can be quite misleading. Um, there are a number of, of tokens that have come and gone that claim to be stable coins that are, quote, stabilized by a number of different mechanisms. Um, there's kind of broadly, you know, three buckets of, of stable coin types, uh, fiat backed stable coins like uh, USDC that I just described means that they are underpinned by um, and and stabilized by a reserve of a fiat currency, a single fiat currency. Um, then there's something called um, like an asset backed token, um, which could be a basket of multiple currencies. It could be currencies and commodities like gold. Um, but there, there's typically more than one type of, of asset that is uh, stabilizing the value of that token. And then um, third really is a, an algorithmic backed stablecoin. Um, there's lots of different varieties of this, but essentially the algorithm um, that, that sits behind the token stabilizes the price based on market dynamics. Um, it's, it's definitely more complicated than, than that. I am simplifying it, simplifying it greatly. I, I think the one thing to, to kind of really clarify when you're thinking about crypto assets is um, the the name has this connotation that that somehow you know crypto is is uh, bad or secret, um, and I think that people don't necessarily realize that when you pay with Apple Pay, you're essentially paying with a cryptographic token as well. Right, right, yeah. And so you know that that token is essentially minted for the transaction and then immediately burned, and it's a digital representation of that transaction. So we can tokenize lots of things, um, and stable coins, um, certainly fiat-backed stable coins, the way that that circle, uh, the circle model operates, is is a digital representation 
of those of those fiat dollars. So I think the obvious next question then, and I think you've alluded to, to one example of this already, is could you give us some real world examples of how stable coins can improve all of our, our lives? And I, if you could speak to the institutional and, and the retail aspect to that. So um, uh, a very recent example, my nephew got married last year. He is based in the U.S., uh, we wanted to send, you know, a gift for their wedding. And instead of, you know, sending a, a bank transfer or, you know, people in the U.S. still use checks, we could have probably sent him a check as well. Uh, my nephew has a Coinbase account and I sent him USDC. Now, I potentially could have sent him Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else. But um, in this case, I wanted to send him a very specific amount of money Um because I try and treat all of my nieces and nephews the same. And so everybody kind of gets the same amount of money for Christmas, the same amount of money uh, for their weddings, et cetera. Um, and so I, I sent that uh, peer-to-peer payment um, using USDC. And, you know, he received it probably, you know, 10 seconds after I sent it. Um, so that that's a that's a use case of, of just peer-to-peer exchange. Um, in... in you know, very developed um, countries where we have highly efficient payment systems, like in the UK, we have faster payments, um, or in in countries like the US, where where there is you know fintech solutions that kind of solve that peer to peer exchange. I think it's difficult to put into context how important that peer to peer. Uh, frictionless exchange is if you have Venmo, for example, or you know you can just send somebody a faster payment and they they get it, um, you know, minutes after you send it in the UK. That is kind of domestic in its focus, right? Um, but if you're traveling with a group of friends and you know you've got three couples that go off to Rome together and somebody pays the bill and you want to kind of divvy that up. Um, it's very difficult to do if you have a couple from the U.S., a couple from Denmark, and a couple from, you know, the U.K., for example. And so stable coins essentially provide um, this uh, ability to, you know, exchange value globally um, without having to go through any type of those national rails or those very specific um, currency-denominated uh, fintech solutions like a Venmo, for example. Um, and equally, they do that with a significantly reduced cost. So, you know, we have solutions like PayPal that allow us to share money um, between each other. But, you know, the fees are pretty significant um, for sending a, a PayPal transaction, certainly cross-border. Um, so so that that is one way um, that people are using stablecoins today to exchange value uh, peer-to-peer in the same way that you would exchange cash. For businesses, um, that, that kind of, if you look through that same lens of transaction settlement, um, certainly businesses that operate cross-border as well, um, you're having to kind of move treasury around through different functions. And stablecoins can, you know, greatly um, increase the, the speed and efficiency of those treasury um, management operations, as well as provide um, a real level of transparency 
given that these transactions, you know, are, are potentially operating on chain. Um, so, so that is a, a efficiency for, for businesses. Um, I think one of the most compelling use cases that we're seeing today, especially in light of some of the geopolitical um, and, and disaster activities that have happened over the last couple of months, um, so the war in Ukraine, for example, and the um, earthquake recently in Turkey demonstrate um, an incredible use case for being able to very quickly um, and efficiently uh, dispatch humanitarian and disaster relief aid um, and to do so from a one-to-many position. So one of the great um, examples of this is uh, a initiative um, that involves uh, the UNHCR, MoneyGram, um, the Stellar Network, and USDC. So essentially, if you have a Stellar-enabled wallet, um, the UN can now send you um, disaster relief or you know displacement relief and the and the. Uh, context of Ukraine that you can receive in a digital wallet um, that obviously you can take with you anywhere um, and be able to then cash out at a MoneyGram location anywhere in the world. And this is critically important because, you know, if, if you are literally in flight, um, you want to be able to move that value um, with you, take it with you, of course, yes, um, you in a secure way, and then be able to, you know, withdraw that money when you need to use it in a safe and secure environment. Very helpful. Um, and, and trading volumes then around stablecoin, they've, they've increased this year, if I'm correct in saying so. Um, and, and then the prospect for these coins, it should be further boosted then by incoming regulations. Um, would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. So, you know, with, um, with USDC specifically, you know, we interface and integrate as financial market infrastructure with traditional finance. So we have partnerships with MasterCard, Visa, Checkout.com, um, a number of MoneyGram, as I just mentioned, a number of you know traditional finance players that are using USDC as a settlement asset. And um, there's a number of ways that jurisdictions are looking at, you know, how best to, to regulate stablecoins. But I think what's the critical takeaway here is that they're being seen as a payment asset. So in the U.S., um, there are a number of discussions around legislation last year, which will, you know, continue to evolve this year. But ultimately, they're being viewed as payment to stablecoins. In um, the UK and within Mika, um, which is the markets and crypto asset uh, regulatory framework that will come into force in Europe um, next year, stablecoins are being regulated as electronic money tokens. So for those jurisdictions that already have electronic money frameworks, like, like the UK and Europe, um, it, it's very easy to, to see a correlatory or correlation um, between um the way that e-money works today in those jurisdictions and the way um, stable coins operate as electronic money tokens. And so I think why that's important um, is that uh, 
using stable coins or viewing stable coins and, and positioning them to be an open source, open blockchain innovation um, for payments specifically um, really opens up a number of opportunities for those countries potentially that don't have something like open banking or, you know, faster payments like we have in the UK and really provide a number of efficiencies um, and again, reduce cost, but equally they can provide payment rails for, um, you know, communities that don't necessarily have the same level of banking infrastructure or to individuals that, that may be underbanked um, in some ways or, or, or unbanked fully. Um, essentially what you need is, is a digital wallet. Now, there are a number of ways that you kind of onboard into um, this ecosystem and those access points or those on and off ramps provide, you know, that the, the compliance requirements around, you know, KYC and, and being able to, you know, ensure that um, there is privacy, but not necessarily anonymity, um, which ensures that there is kind of financial stability. So I think that's how regulators are, are looking at um, overseeing stablecoins, which is um, pretty significantly different than the way um, policymakers are looking at how they might regulate crypto more broadly. The AMA Digital Assets Conference returns to New York on May 11th, 2023. The markets are different, but the mandate remains the same, mastering the how of institutional investment in digital assets. We will be returning to our Midtown venue with fresh perspectives and content, drawing on the work of the AMA Dog, the global voice of the alternative investment management industry in the digital asset space. Practical breakouts on trading, compliance, and operational topics will run alongside plenary panels featuring leading global investment managers and allocators. Come join us at the AMAT Digital Assets Conference. Space is limited, so purchase your tickets today. Find us on the AMA website and follow the link to purchase tickets. To participate as a sponsor, please contact Sharon D'Agostino at sdagostino at ama.org. S-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O at ama.org. If you are not an AMA member yet, this is the perfect time to join and be a part of this thoughtful discussion. I'm so glad you mentioned KYC there because I, I did want to follow up on um, some of the examples you just gave because the first thing that, that jumped out to me when you're talking about cross-border payments is the, the risk of fraud and the risk of or even just just errors in payments or, or any of the millions of things that can go wrong especially when you're talking about sharing money um, into to less developed markets um, i recently went away for several weeks and, and had to pay for several things um, ahead of time and to do that i set up a, a world account with my bank which essentially sat adjacent to my normal bank account and i could transfer in uh, various currencies that all sort of sat in a pot and then I could make payments directly. That was a, a long way better than what we did even a few years ago in terms of wire transfers. Um, still potentially had some limitations in terms of not all currencies are on there, for example. It is a very obvious limitation. But when I was still using a, a traditional retail bank, I think I had to click 
am I am sure this is not a fraudulent transaction about five times and 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 uh, acknowledge all sorts of potential risk before the the transfer went through. So if we envisage a world where we're using some sort of a blockchain network for for a stable coin. C- are we likely to see the same guardrails in place or, or different guardrails if, if the, the asset is fundamentally different in sense of being trackable? Yeah, so I think those guardrails will, will always be important. Um, and again, that kind of sits within that ecosystem of the, the on and off ramps. And so if you think about um, stable coins as, you know, another, as, as tokenized cash, essentially, as a digital representation of cash, then you know all of those um, kind of consumer protections come come into play. I wouldn't think of them specifically as you know needing different types of of guardrails or or rules. Um, we we move electronic money around you know today um, all the time, right? Again, like if you're using a PayPal account, that's essentially what you're using. Um, e-money and that's privately issued you know like commercial bank money um so it's not central bank money and there are protections in place um for consumers i think fraud comes up a lot um in the digital payment space holistically right so the the more uh, often we use um internet-based or e-commerce payments um, you know, anytime there is an opportunity to game the system, bad actors are going to try and, and do that. And, you know, we saw a real proliferation of fraud during COVID, for example, because a lot of people were at home transacting online. Some people for the first time, my parents used, um, you know, a grocery delivery service for the very first time, right? And, getting them to a level of comfort around sharing their bank details or their credit card information with a third party. You know, they're very uncomfortable doing that. Um, And so I think what comes with the advent of the potential for technology um, and for any types of these new types of payment systems to um, positively accent our lives comes with that also risk. And so, you know, I think that's where education comes in. Um, And, you know, just like using any new technology, people will need to learn how to open a wallet, how to secure their wallets, um, how to uh, be sure that, you know, the transactions that they're making, for instance, aren't phishing, right? We get tons of phishing um, attempts, you know, by text and email every day, right? And so I think that those risks... Um, aren't necessarily amplified by um, by tokenized cash or, or e-money or stable coins, but they uh, certainly need to be um, integrated into those existing kind of consumer protection frameworks. Tina, then staying on the subject of the regulatory environment and, and for the digital assets industry at large, it's fair to say that Things have been in overdrive um, as jurisdictions react to the tumultuous events over the past year, which culminated in the collapse of FTX, as everyone knows. Uh, And we know also that Circle has embraced calls for sensible regulation for the industry. How do you see all of this playing out? 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we, we, we hear about regulation, um, a lot. And I think what not everyone necessarily understands is that in many cases for new regulation to come into force, we need new legislation, um, which gives the regulators permission to put new rules in place. And, and that's obviously different jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So um, I think it's not just a matter of regulators deciding, you know, that, that they want to regulate the space or that we should regulate the space, but policymakers more, more broadly at our legislative level also need to um, potentially put in place legislation that, that allows our, our regulator community to, to undertake that activity. Um, for, for me personally, and certainly from a, from a circle perspective, we are a regulation first company. Um, and we appreciate that when you are, you know, operating um, within the margins of, of moving value, um, certainly for enabling people to move value, um, that there needs to be um, guardrails around what good business practices look like. Um, you know, in the, in the case of stable coins, a lot of questions are asked around the reserves. So, you know, what quality of the reserves do you hold? Where do you hold them? Who has purview over those? Are they segregated from your own operating funds, et cetera? And, you know, we think that those questions are, are critical. Um, and we take probably the, the most conservative approach uh, available to us, um, which probably exceeds our regulatory obligation. Um, however, we think that, you know, given that we're, we're operating in those kind of financial infrastructure margins, it's, it's important. It also impacts trust in, you know, the growth of the industry. Um, and, and trust is a, is a very, very difficult um, thing to regain once it's lost. And I think that, you know, some of the uh, results or impact of, of trust following, you know, FTX and, and the collapse of, of that business um, has been dented a little bit. I think what's important to keep in mind, though, is there is, you know, a huge difference between um, a system failure or, you know, operational failures um, that have to do with the resilience of the technology versus fraud. Um, and in the case of um, FTX, I think that, you know, we can all agree that there was potentially, you know, a, a significant amount of fraud um, and some incredibly lacking corporate governance. So it's not just the regulation that I think, um, you know, needs to, to come into force and be harmonized in some way across jurisdictions, especially for things like stable coins that, again, have this global um, flow of value, but equally we need to be looking at market conduct and, and corporate governance and, you know, fiduciary obligation. And, and I think trust really is at the core of this. And, and especially when you, when you talk about FTX and, and, and other examples that may have put observers that are, are interested in digital assets, but maybe hesitant or, or even institutional players that might be, see opportunities but are still unsure. I just want to go back to this point about 
central bank interest in the space because uh, in researching for this episode, I believe that as many as a, a hundred different uh, countries are looking at central bank digital currencies or CBDCs uh, at one level or another, you know, from sort of initial uh, interest through to sort of having um, proof of concepts out there, the UK being chief among them. The obvious question for me here is, will or is this central banks just seeking to cannibalize the crypto market? You know, if a digital pound exists, does that destroy the the use case for Bitcoin, for example? So I, I there, there's probably more than 100 countries that, that are looking at central bank digital currencies. And, and I think that central banks are right to um, have a critical eye on how they, you know, manage monetary supply um, and, and their, um, you know, kind of sovereignty in, in the, through the lens of kind of looking at, you know, value becoming globalized and its ability to be transmitted. For me, there's a very strong use case, um, going back to my, my banking days, specifically transaction banking for wholesale CBDCs, um, that really allow greater efficiency and transparency, um, for kind of commercial bank um, or you know bank to bank settlement, um, that is a an area that you know if significantly improved would have a, a great trickle down effect on you know efficiencies for businesses and and certainly greater visibility into those money flows, um, both from an efficiency perspective and and also potentially from a money laundering perspective, right? Um, from a retail perspective. I think we're at this early stage in CBDC exploration um, where there's still a lot of questions outstanding for me. And those are primarily centered around privacy um, and the programmable nature of these tokens and how governments would potentially use those features um, in a way that might compromise the way that people um, are able to, you know, spend and and save their money. And so when I hear about um, things like caps on the amount that you would be able to to hold at any one time, um, there are proposals around, you know, spend it or lose it to get people to actually use the CBDC, which to me feels, you know, more like a gift card than, you know, central bank money. Um, There have been discussions about if, you know, a government um, or, or really any entity had so much information about how you're spending your money, would there then be um, oversight into, well, you know, you've had McDonald's three times in a week and that's not good for you. And, you know, potentially your insurance company might want to know about your unhealthy habits or you, you had three drinks at the bar this evening. Um, or, you know, do you really need that Porsche when you could buy a Ford instead, right? There's this kind of level of oversight. And I'm not suggesting that that's specifically what government's intention would be. Certainly, you know, not the UK. Um, but yet we haven't had much clarity around some of these proof of concepts around 
how they're going to enhance privacy or ensure privacy. And so governments recognize that that if you're going to replace cash, which, you know, I would argue if somebody came up with the idea of cash today, central banks probably wouldn't like that either. And and certainly regulators wouldn't like that either. Um, you know, it, it is a, a fairly anonymous way for me to give you money. Um, but uh, I think that if you're going to potentially replace um, or augment uh, the way that consumers have access to, you know, sovereign currency, then there certainly need to be um, a lot more clarity around some of those, some of those challenges specifically related to, to privacy and programmability. That's interesting. So there is a, a risk out there that although, because I just find it very interesting because if, if you, Cast, cast your mind back to conversations around Bitcoin and original uses around the anonymity of it and the decentralized aspects. And it's just so fascinating to see how the conversation has progressed and, and now central banks are involved. Well, Bitcoin's not anonymous. And, and I think that, you know, there's a really great podcast um, that came out a couple of weeks ago um, with Laura Shin. I think it's her Unchained podcast where she does an interview with, you know, a, a real kind of cypherpunk OG. Um, so one of the, you know, very first people in the space um, discussing the idea that, you know, early on people thought that, you know, Bitcoin was anonymous and it turns out it's not at all. Um, so it, it has pseudonymous attributes to it. Um, but, it is it is quite easy, and you can ask people from the Department of Justice. They they love it when people, um, you know, get up to shenanigans using Bitcoin because it is very easy to to track down who that was, um, you know, and and potentially take action, recover those funds, etc. Um, so I think that you know the I I don't think that central banks are trying to replace Bitcoin use. Um, and I don't think that central banks are trying to replace stable coins either. Um, from my perspective, we have a two-tier banking system today that um, involves both public and private money. And I can't foresee a future where we wouldn't continue to have public and private money. They serve very different functions today. Um, and very different use cases. So there might be a reason why you want to use a CBDC for something specific, and there might be a reason why you want to use a stable coin. And I think that greater optionality, certainly around payments for consumers, is a good thing. We will share that link in, in the show notes, Tina, of that podcast that you mentioned. That's great. Thank you. Shout out to Laura. <laughs> so let's end with some crystal ball gazing uh natural natural conclusion i think um and we will of course come back to you uh to see how accurate you were in in three to five years time um physical cash is obviously on the out um it's always amazing now when you see even if you you know buy a coffee from a, a stall on the street now they have cash you know tap, tap contacts and all the rest 
uh, so clearly the direction of travel is, is going one way to a, to a cashless society. But could I just put you on the spot and, and get your predictions for sort of where we're at? And do you have a, a, a timeline in your mind for when we might switch to digital currencies or will there always be this duality to it? I think for, you know, the, the medium term future, you know, cash is not going away. I certainly use it very seldomly. And most people that I know don't. I mean, we're at the point now where I don't even need to take my credit card with me when I leave the house because it's all on my phone, right? Um, and, you know, as as infrastructure gets more resilient and, and fraud is, is easier to be managed, then, you know, things like being able to kind of tap and go, you know, the volume, the, the, value of of the ability for you to to use your apple pay you know has gone up from i think it was originally like i don't know maybe 30 quid and now um you know it's significantly higher so you you don't need to to take other forms of of payment with you um there are countries um and you know areas of the world where where cash is still king you know if you look at spending patterns and behavior patterns um even in europe you know Germany really likes cash. Um, try getting into a taxi in Japan and paying with anything other than cash, right? There, I, I think that people will always, um, cash will always be kind of this this safe backup of, you know, if if a meteor were to, to hit the earth and we were not able to have access to, you know, the, the internet, our systems were to go down. I mean, it happened a few years ago. Um, some of you may remember when the visa network went down in Europe, this is, I don't know, 2012 maybe. And it was ironic because there was a whole bunch of fintech people at money 2020. Um, so this, you know, conference of 10,000 people and nobody could pay for anything because nobody had any cash. Um, and the visa network was down. So, um, I, I can't see cash going away completely, but what I can see is that new absolutely new, net new economic opportunity being opened up um, by the ability to truly digitize and tokenize value. And some of those things we can see today, um, the integration with, you know, gaming um, and spending, you know, the advent of the metaverse and how that's going to impact the way, you know, we socialize and work in the future. And certainly kind of like, you know, the, the, um, iPhone moment where, you know, the ability to be carrying around a computer in your pocket opened up a whole new universe of e-commerce that just didn't exist before. So I think that there will be net new economic activity that emerges as a result of this innovation um, that will, a bit again, be a, a use case that is sufficiently different to the use case for cash. And just to add to that, actually, what's intriguing i think is this uh, slightly counterintuitive trend where you mentioned japan and and germany as two examples there that are still quite um uh, nostalgic for for cash but then you have countries such as kenya where they have this uh, mpesa app essentially on their phone which is connected to your mobile and they have almost leapfrogged into a cashless society so now Again, you know, you go to a stall on the street, you go to you think of uh, less developed financial financially developed countries and you would assume that, that cash would be king in all of those. And then actually 
what some of these digital solutions are offering. Again, give someone a smartphone anywhere in the world and they can run a business. And and now if you add to this, they can now have uh, more frictionless payment. And, and it really does create uh, limitless possibilities for development in those markets when they can just pay for things again you know without cash and, and, and all the opportunities that that brings um I, I really could keep picking your brain on this for for the rest of the day but I, i'm sure you have better things to do so uh, all that's left is to thank you so much for your time for joining us on the long short today well it was great to be with you guys and um thanks very much for having me the Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.